The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. Employer-provided pensions are an important co component of the compensation workers receive for their labor. Workers trust that adequate funds will be set aside to provide the promised benefits. And yet with public employees' pension plans in many states, this is turning out not to be true. State employee pension plans are massively underfunded with states like Illinois and Connecticut facing, by all accounts, imminent bankruptcy. When state pension plans do not have enough assets to pay all the promised benefits, something must give, causing enormous injury either to taxpayers or to retirees who are going to see their benefits cut. How have so many states gotten into trouble, and what can be done to prevent such problems from occurring ever again? Joining me today on eConversations is Eileen Norcross, the Vice President for Policy Research and a Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Ms. Norcross earned bachelor's and master's degrees in economics from Rutgers University and has been researching and writing about public pensions for Mercatus for about the last decade. She's the author of a newly published book called The, public, the Political Economy of Public Pensions, which is co-authored with Dr. Dan Smith of Middle Tennessee State and who is my former colleague here at Troy. Welcome to eConversations, Eileen. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Well, if you can, like I mentioned that there are some states that are facing uh, serious problems here. What, what would be an example of one and just how bad is the situation in some states? Well, the state that's probably in the worst shape is Illinois, which I'm sure many people have heard about. Illinois has unfunded pension liabilities that are uh, just massive. Uh, according to their own accountants, it's $149 billion. According to Moody's, it's $300 billion, and economists would even say it's larger than that. Uh, and they're in a situation where they're beginning to dedicate about 30% of their budget to pensions. The situation is profound on the local level with some cities like Peoria dedicating close to two-thirds or 100% of their tax revenues to paying pensions. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. They have to pay them under the state constitution. They have very few options here other than pay this, reduce services, mm -hmm. and that's what they're looking at. So pensions are part of the compensation that employees receive. They're the employer-provided benefits. And sometimes some people have the, the perception almost that like, when employers provide these benefits, it's almost like a gratuity that they're offering employees. But they're really part of the compensation package, and, and they're, they're, the benefits are earned by uh, employees, right? That's right. A defined benefit plan is an agreement between the employer and the employee to defer compensation, to set aside a portion of that uh, worker's salary over time to grow into a retirement payment uh, that they're, they're banking on. They're waiting for that retirement payment. It's based on a formula. The employee agrees to set aside a certain percentage of the earned of the salary over the employee's lifetime. So indeed, this is a, a kind of implicit agreement uh, between an employer and an employee and something that the employee has earned over their working life. And uh, specifically, we know that employers look at not just the 
amount of salary that they're employ paying employees. It's their salary plus the uh, benefits, uh, often 20 or 30% or of, of a person's salary. So if, if we're talking about a teacher who's making $50,000 a year, there's really their full cost is maybe like $65,000 a year. But we can also think of that $65,000 is ultimately their total compensation. And so any money that's coming, you know, being set out of that $65,000 for a pension is really their compensation, right? That's correct. It's part of the total compensation package. They're electing to defer some of their, pay, their uh, income today for income in the future. So that's the whole picture, and that's the full cost of a public employee. And, and often there are also health care benefits provided to the employee. Yeah, and, and so uh, um, you know, we want to make sure that, that you know, we understand that these are benefits. These are benefits, but they're really things that employees have, as, in some sense, earned, because it's part of their, their compensation that they are, you know, that the conditions under which they uh, decide to agree to take the job. Now, one thing that's, I, I think, you know, particularly a little bit different about pensions as opposed to normal compensation is that if if I wanted to start a business and if I wanted to hire uh, you know, Eileen, if I wanted to hire you to work for me, if I welched on making uh, the payment, the payroll, after a couple of weeks, you'd probably realize I wasn't paying you and you could take your labor elsewhere. But the situation is different if you work for 30 years because I've promised you a pension after you work for 30 years and you go to retire, and I say, whoops, I'm sorry, I didn't actually set any money aside for the pension. You can't go work for another, you've worked for 30 years for me, and you can't go work for somebody else and earn a pension that way, right? That's correct. So there's a big element of trust here. You're trusting the employer to, to make good on that and say, I'm going to set aside a portion of your salary every year. You're agreeing to perhaps less pay today for retirement benefits. And you're banking on that in your retired years when you're 60, 65 uh, you're no longer able to work, uh, the employer has a, really an obligation to be setting aside that money, a moral obligation yeah. to set aside that money every year. Um, part of the problem we've seen is some of the states in the worst shape have not done that. They have not set aside the adequate funding. So, so we'll, we'll get into that. Everybody, I just want to make sure that we've set this up. Like that, that's going to be a, you know, I, I think that's a real, real, real uh, problem. Um, now, We've talked a little bit about the form of pensions. There's, there's different types of, of pensions that, uh, pension plans that employers could offer to their employees. They call defined benefit and defined contribution. If you could explain for us the, the difference between these two different kinds of, of plans. A defined benefit plan is exactly that. It's, it's giving you a set benefit in your retired years. Uh, the employee employer is agreeing to set aside a certain amount of, uh, uh, of your salary every year, a percentage of it, uh, to grow into a payment that they're going to make to you in your, in your retired years. It's based on a formula, a certain percentage mm -hmm. of your salary, the number of years you've worked, some salary replacement factor. Uh, so there's a, it's an annuity payment essentially in retirement. Some people elect to take it in a lump sum. Uh, most people elect to take it as a series of payments that they, they are guaranteed to receive in retirement. Uh, the, those funds are invested um, and, and there's a certain, uh, the employee contributes, the employer contributes, and the assets also return, uh, there's a return on the assets that goes uh, towards that final benefit payment or set of payments. Defined contribution, however, uh, is the employer agrees to make a contribution to your personal retirement accounts. You're, you're in control of the investments. The payout is not certain. It's based on how much money you elect to, to set aside for your own retirement and how much your employer agrees to contribute to that retirement and how the investments perform. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the defined benefit, you have a predictable stream of income 
in your retired years, which is why it's appealing to, to many workers, especially public sector workers. Uh, whereas at the defined contribution, uh, the final payout is uncertain, but what is certain is the employer must make that contribution every year, mm -hmm. and then you're responsible for the investments. Yeah, and so with a defined contribution plan, the employee is, in a sense, more in charge uh, of their their retirement. They they are directing the, the allocation of investments and, and how much more they might want to add in, into that saving. That's correct. That's correct. Now, which of the programs are the ones that, you know, you mentioned in Illinois, we're facing uh, the, the bankruptcy. Which type of program is that then? That's defined benefit. Uh, the, the crisis in Illinois is, is all defined benefit in their state plans and in their local plans. Mm -hmm. Okay, and, and so, I mean, at one level, when we talk about any type of defined benefit plan, or for that matter, even if it's a defined contribution, because if the employee, if, the, if you or I ourselves are, are taking more control over our uh, retirement, if we're in charge, in any either case, we have to rely on somebody like a, an actuary or, or an accountant who uh, would be able to tell us how much money we need. If we want to have a certain amount of money when we get to invest it to retirement, how much money do we need to be setting aside every time? And that would be the case if, for an employer if they're running one of the pension, uh, a defined benefit plan, or if we're saving uh, more on our own through a defined contribution plan. So, you know, I, I know a number of uh, companies, private companies, ran into problems with uh, defined benefit uh, plans. And so, I mean, one question as we look at this is, is it just, has it just been a problem of the actuaries getting their sums wrong? That they've just, that they were, you know, because we're relying on them saying, like, if we put aside this amount every month and then we invest it, we'll, we'll have enough money. But uh, is it just a matter that we've gotten bad advice from the actuaries? Well, it's, it's an interesting story. Uh, the actuaries uh, work under standards. How, how should we value what we're, what, we're setting, what we're promising? What kind of discount rate or interest rate should we use to value those promises? Mm -hmm. Private sector guidances are, are, are more conservative than public sector ones. In the private sector, they value these promises uh, using, frankly, lower interest rates. And, and what that led to in the private sector was the recognition that these promises are, are quite large. Uh, mm -hmm. and companies began to move away from uh, defined benefit plans uh, many years ago. What we see in the public sector, sector however, are a lot more discretion in uh, how actuaries are picking those interest rates, and they've been okay. relatively high over the last several decades. And what that has led to uh, is that these, these promises seem uh, cheaper uh, on the books. Uh, mm -hmm. So they're setting aside, they were setting aside less money over the years. Uh, and that's driven by a little bit of a disagreement between the uh, the way the actuaries see the problem and the way economists might see the problem. Okay. Now, uh, so there, there's another issue I think that we have to think about before we get into it, and that is, it, it's one that I have a little bit of problem with. As, as a free market economist and a libertarian, I hate it when people, when experts try to say that people are making bad decisions, but there seems to be a lot of evidence um, that, that all of us sort of like don't seem to understand how much money we have to set aside now to to, to, to properly fund our, our retirement. Um, that, that that people just don't save enough for retirement. And then, again, I'm very I'm uncomfortable making a statement like that. But the evidence seems to be pretty um, significant, and it'd be hard hard to sort of as a, a a scholar or an academic to ignore 
the the evidence on this. So talk a little bit about this and, and like how you know it, and is that really sort of the, the underlying problem that we have here, whether it be through individuals with their own retirement programs or you know businesses running there or states uh, running uh, state employee programs, is it really just the same problem manifesting itself in, in, in different cases? You could say there's there's always a temptation to want to just put off what you need to do for tomorrow to del to del gratification and, and to uh, rather than delay gratification to to spend that money today on other things rather than set it aside and save and maybe it's mm -hmm. just a human tendency um, when you have a complex structure like a pension there's more temptation or opportunities to avoid the reality of what you need to set aside. Uh, to, to play around with assumptions, to take on more risk, and, and to make that promise look just a little bit less today, like you have to set aside mm -hmm. less today, and you actually have to set aside. And it's, it's, it's an incentive problem that's embedded in pensions, maybe because of the complexity, maybe because of, of the public choice problems and the temptation uh, to spend that, that money today on other things, uh, on services, on expanding programs, uh, on, on tax cuts, on, on any number of things, rather than to set aside what you need to set aside. Yeah, and then, you know, again, I think even, you know, those of us in our own individual count, uh, lives, you know, we might be thinking, man, I need to replace this water heater. And so, okay, I was gonna put this money in my pension, but I'll, I'll spend it instead on, on a water heater. And like, you know, I dislike the, the tendency of experts to step in and say like, oh, people are making bad decisions when they pay for that water heater as opposed to, to putting the, the money aside for their retirement. But it does seem to be something we systematically, we systematically do. Um, and so it's, it's, it's an issue here. But I think we, we, now we want to sort of get into the, the, the mechanism of how exactly this, is, this happened, this underfunding has happened and, and, and why, and then what we might be able to do about it. And, I mean, I, I see, a, in one sense, I see this uh, problem is reflecting some basic public choice uh, incentives of, of elected officials. And, and, you know, in public choice, we, we try to say that you know, elected officials, you tend to get elected by providing people benefits and, and imposing costs on people isn't so popular. And so when we think about this uh, structure of, of you know, what we call public choice and analysis of, of of legislators, legislators are have a are going to have an incentive to try to provide a lot of goods, right? That's right. It's it's easy to make promises uh, when you're not fully aware of the costs of, of what you're what you're uh, providing, and that indeed I think is the case with pensions, especially let's say 20 years ago when the market was doing great in the 2000s. You saw that in California and New Jersey, just benefit enhancements and these things pay for themselves, and that kind mm -hmm. of mentality crept in. Uh, so sure, it, it's it's very tempting to want to satisfy your constituents and and offer everyone everything they want and not think about the costs. And at one level, you know, in, in particularly if 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 you're a politician, you can in effect sort of like spend the same money twice. It would be really great. And in a, in a way, I, this is sort of what they're they're doing because they if they promise the employ their state employees that the state teachers and police officers a really generous. Uh, pension and then well they're supposed to allocate money into the pension but if they can somehow manage to take that money and spend it on some other project then you can you've already made the employees happy because they think they're getting this really generous pension and, and you can make another group happy too right yeah sure and you, you can get away with that for a while especially if the market's doing well um, mm -hmm. you can say hey look the pensions are returning well and and you know don't 
we're, we're making part of the contribution at least, and it's going to be fine, and it will pay. It will it will take care of itself in a sense. And uh, indeed, uh, that's what happened. And then and then spend the money on other uh, on other priorities. Um, but but when the market doesn't do so well, these gaps open up, and that's where you start getting more attention on. Hey, we've got an underfunded system now. What do we do? Um, but there's a temptation to, uh, to push it into the future to to spread out the costs using. Uh, different assumptions, uh, like amortization, for example, just to spread those costs out over an infinite period, very open-ended period, and, and these things look cheaper to the sponsor. Mm -hmm. And that's been the ongoing temptation. Yeah, so, um, you know, I guess there's a, we need to get into a little bit in, on this, uh, some of the details of, of accounting here. Like, I, I'm, I'm an economist, not an accountant, and, and I, I found accounting very boring. And not something that we want to like, you know, uh, bother. Well, I think you're trying to have a show, and you're going to talk too much about accounting. You're not going to have very many you know, people watching your show. But we do need to talk a little bit about uh, accounting here. And you've already hinted at uh, some of the, the the issue that there's a differences between how you do a pension accounting for these uh, public sector pensions versus. Uh, private sector pensions that that businesses might be offering their employees, but let's talk about a little bit. And you've you've mentioned it some, but let's let's talk about some of these key assumptions that that uh, have to be made when you're doing a, a account pension accounting. Sure, uh, the big one is is called the discount rate, and that that's really an interest rate, and that's mm -hmm. important to figuring out how much money you need to set aside today uh, to grow into what you're promising tomorrow. And in the past, uh, pensions have been very conservatively invested, and and these are guaranteed payments, as we've mentioned. So there wasn't much of a big deal. Uh, they were invested conservatively. Uh, employers were setting aside uh, funds. What happened in in the last several decades is these plans moved into much more uh, aggressive investment strategies, and they were starting to assume high rates of return, higher rates of return on their pensions, uh, essentially putting a lot of the uh, a lot of the work on the market to to return uh, to return well on the investments and fund these plans. But when that mm -hmm. doesn't happen, uh, it opens up funding gaps. It also has the added uh, problem of making those payments look smaller than they need to be in order to keep right. up with full funding. So that's what happened in the public sector, and that's that has to do with uh, the accounting guidelines. And then they say that you can do this. You can use these higher rates of return uh, to value those those uh, those contributions that you need to make today. A private sector uses a lot more uh, conservative accounting, so mm -hmm. uh, they don't. They have not run into the same kind of problems. They they have more accurate accounting and um, accurate contribution um, policies. And so that's the discount rate's the biggest one. But there are other other assumptions you can use uh, that that make the cost look a little bit lower. And it's it's the accounting in some way that allows the. Or provides the cover for state legislators or, or the, the sponsoring government entities to not make the payments into the into the pension fund that, that, that they seemingly should have to to do. It's sort of giving them some cover to say, well, we're not really completely welching here. We're we're, you know, we're providing what's uh, necessary, but the accountants are telling us we only have to pay a little bit here. We're not as much as we thought we had to. That's right, and and again, it, it sort of encourages a little bit more risk taking in, mm -hmm. in what you're investing that pension in. Uh, now, now they're getting better. Um, they're starting to lower those rates of return from eight percent to down to seven percent now. Uh, economists will tell you they should be closer to bonds, um, right. but you know there's a recognition that hey, maybe we're we're expecting really high rates of return here on, on the pension funds, and we need to be adjusting that. 
and, and that's adjusting and that's an important issue. I mean, I guess it comes out of financial economics and the, the nature of, of financial markets. But the, the you only get a higher rate of return if you assume more risk. Then that's the possibility that you won't actually get a, a return, and you might so, uh, actually suffer losses. Right. Right. Some years can be great, and and it's going going really really great and then other years you know look at the financial crisis and that's really mm -hmm. where we saw a lot of tension on the pension issue because that was a profound drop in the market and it showed up in in those pension financials so yeah you're you're banking on high returns but you're also running the risk of of uh suffering great losses and i guess there's also the tendency as, as you mentioned when the stock market if you're invested a lot in stocks and, and the, the market's at at its boom point um your pension looks really like it's really well funded, but we know the stock market goes up and down, and so you really can't like look at the when it's at the very best. You should be taking a much longer view tour of this and realize like, okay, stocks have gone up now, but they will go down at some point, and we have to factor that into like how much the, these assets are worth. That's right, and a pension should be a certain thing. It shouldn't be a roller coaster ride. That's that's been mm -hmm. one criticism of this approach. And when you're tying that pension to these swings in the market. You're bringing the pension along for the ride, in a sense. And and so, um, and I guess one of the you know, the issues then that would uh, arise here is like you know we, we we start to see what's the the problem has been. I mean, what could be some options going forward to uh, address this? Because you know, um, and, and so like, I guess we can just let, let you get started here because you, you offer a number of in the in the book. So let, let's talk about what what because you know. As bad as the situation is in Illinois, as bad as it is now, we can't undo the fact that they're in that hole. But what we can try to avoid going forward is, is digging new holes. We're eventually going to have to get ourselves out of these holes we've dug. But most importantly, going forward, let's not dig more holes for people in the future to have to deal with. Well, I think um, um, Dan and I make some recommendations. You need to improve the rules here. Uh, not only the accounting rules, get more transparent, accurate accounting that fully assesses what these are worth. So you're putting in the right amount every year, that you're, you're fully contributing every year uh, what, what you need to fund those benefits. Uh, are there ways that we can create rules that, that make sure that the politicians contribute to the plans? Mm -hmm. In Illinois, they guarantee the benefit, but they do not guarantee that the government contribute uh, every year, and that's where they ran into a problem. New York State, however, uh, they they uh, they have a constitutional uh, guarantee of, of payment that the that the sponsor has to contribute every year. Uh, so there's governance reforms we can make. Uh, we should think about offering employees options that uh, mm -hmm. defined benefits may work for some, but we should think about um, offering defined contribution plans. Or uh, some states have moved in this direction, uh, closing down some of the defined benefit plans that are poorly funded moving employees to either a hybrid, which gives them a combination of a defined benefit and a defined contribution, or to a new defined contribution plan. So put, put more of the um, control in the hands of the employee to select mm -hmm. what kind of retirement that they want. And let, you know move out of these high-risk asset classes, move away from the hedge funds and the alternatives and the, the real estate, and move that pension portfolio to something that um, is a little bit more conservative, uh, that, that's in line with what what people in the private sector would advise anyone do in retirement, which is move to lower risk investments as you age. Mm -hmm. um, and don't be taking on all this risk, especially as your employees are getting closer to retirement. Mm -hmm. 
Now, you mentioned the uh, uh, constitutional guarantees in here, and so I, I, I would like to uh, uh, unpack that or maybe talk a little bit more because there's two different things you could attempt to guarantee. One thing that many states have done is, is try to guarantee the benefits that employees are, are supposed to receive. And, um, you know, it, 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 explain a little bit what that is, and then we can talk about guaranteeing, you know, constitutionally guaranteeing that the, the state has to actually make the payments. Yes. Uh, so the constitutional guarantees, eight states have them. The strictest is, uh, some of them are, they're, they're structured differently. In Illinois, they guarantee that they will uh, pay out all accrued benefits and all future benefits, ones you haven't yet earned, mm -hmm. including a 3% cost of living increase. Very generous. Um, but they have not uh, put in a guarantee that they would contribute every year. Uh, New York guarantees both. They guarantee accrued benefits, plus that they will contribute to the funds, so that the Constitution is um, is is one place where you can put in these rules. It's not generally recommended because it's also hard to change. Mm -hmm. um, but but if you're going to guarantee the benefit, you should at least guarantee the contribution. Um, other states make that guarantee in statute. Uh, they all states generally protect what you've earned to date. Some states protect a little bit more than that, and it it just depends state to state how much they protect and and what they um, uh, you know what what they are binding how they bind their own hands as well and you know i think i don't I, I can see a rationale for guaranteeing the benefits in some form because uh, as i mentioned there you have that i mean a pension is different in that somebody could work for 30 years and then if and when they go to retire you say oh we're slashing your benefits that's you you can't that was part of your compensation you were you were guaranteed you were promised that you you agreed to work based on the uh, promise that you'd be receiving that. And, and I think one level, you know, public choice economists recommend constitutional level guarantees if you think politicians are likely to do something you don't want them to do. Like we, we, put, we need constitutional rules to prevent politicians from misbehaving in different ways, right? Um, yes, in, in theory, uh, that should work. One, one problem with pensions is that uh, you can't bind legislatures necessarily to make that payment. Now, New York has had good funding discipline, uh, but it, it's been noted that in a case like Illinois, even if you were to bind their hands in Constitution, would legislatures evade that? And that's that's an okay. open question. Um, so it, it's Illinois is really in a, a remarkable position because they've they've promised everything, even things that have not yet been earned. You can't reduce anything for an employee once they're hired. So mm -hmm. some of these benefits become very expensive very quickly, and that hurts the younger workers. There's, there's, you know, the younger workers who are just entering the workforce in some of these states are getting less generous benefits, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and and basically it's backloaded to people who have been in the system for a while. And, you know, I guess um, you know, you you mentioned having an option. You know, that perhaps one thing states should do is is offer employees an option, and you know that might be good as well because if you've got if for both defined benefit and defined contribution plans, because if you're a, if you're an employee, if you're a government employee, and you're really skeptical about the politicians are ever going to do the right thing, or they're always going to systematically tr be trying to underfund your pension, then you might say, you might be particularly to say, well, just give me the money, and I'll be in charge, and I'll, I'll make you know. And and, and, and it, it, I think you've also mentioned that when you have defined contribution, you you do make it like the the, the government has to make that contribution, right? Mm -hmm. That's correct. Defined contribution, or the employer is obligated to make that contribution every year. It puts you in control, and you have more mobility. You can go from employer to employer with that 
retirement savings account that is accumulating as as you as you work in different jobs. With the defined benefit, you're kind of stuck in, in a job for a number of years mm -hmm. before you have full access to the benefit. So it's got greater mobility um, and more control for the employee, and a guarantee that your employer will put in the money every year, as opposed to defined be benefits where we've seen some shirking. Yeah. I mean, would it be possible for, uh, because when we look at what states do, we have defined benefit pl plans for the employees, but then we also have like a state agency that's running, that's in charge and operating it. You know, could possibly just contracting with uh, financial companies be a, a way to say, because if the state has a contract saying we will pay certain amount, you know, the, 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 this company agrees to provide the benefits, but the company's going to say how much you have to contribute every year. Would that be a way to go sort of like forcing the states to pay? It, it would, yes. If you if you would think of having a company uh, run these defined benefit plans, um, that would actually probably increase the contributions that were um, needed uh, to fund the plans, and that would lead to, to, to reforms of these systems. Certainly, it would, it would get rid of some of the incentives we've talked about uh, to to not put in the full contribution, to use those funds for other things, a private company would, the contract would require that the employer make that contribution. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Uh, and thanks very much for coming on and joining us. Uh, this has been uh, very enlightening, and, and thank you all for joining us. Join us again next time for another eConversations. Thank you, thanks for having me. This has been eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University.